this week on the Back Table Podcast. I mean, and that's just the evolution, right? But being able to partner with industry companies, because they're the ones who make our instruments. And so being able to partner with them for them to recognize, hey, the way you've designed this, just I can't use this comfortably. I'm going to have to use two hands and I'm a two-handed surgeon. I can't put two hands on one instrument. And so it was being able to work with my male colleagues as well from that standpoint and introducing female perspective so that it really allowed us to incorporate all shapes and sizes so that we can efficiently and safely perform surgery. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. Welcome to the next episode of Backtable OBGYN. This is Mark Hoffman, your host, and I've got a great guest and good friend, Dr. Arthi Chokeri Singh, who is the Interim Chief Medical Officer at Carl Stortz Endoscopy. Dr. Chokeri Singh, how are you? I'm doing great, Mark. Thanks for having me on the show. And it's, is Arthi okay? I, I call you Arthi every other time I see you, but I want to make sure we are keeping it professional. So please, no formalities. Good, good, good. So Welcome, and thanks so much for coming on. Uh, Arthi is, like I said, the uh, interim CMO at Carl Stortz. Uh, has been there at Carl Stortz since 2020. Uh, you were the partner, uh, minimally invasive GYN surgery partner of one of our good friends, Dr. Charles Miller. Chuck, yeah. advocate Lutheran outside of Chicago and trained with Keith Isaacson in Boston prior to that. And so people we've we've known for a long time and for our listeners, Arthi was like my first real MIGS mentor and took me <laughs> under her wing when I was just a little resident, like trying to find anybody who could help me. And she was and has, has continued to be a good friend and mentor of mine over the years. And it is with great pleasure that I bring you on to Backtable. So thanks again for coming on. Absolutely. And it's been a great pleasure to watch and see your growth as well, Mark. So happy to be doing this. Let's start off by just having you tell the audience about yourself, like sort of how you got to be where you are now. Yeah. Thanks, Mark, for the opportunity again to speak with your audience it's kind of an interesting journey. I went into OBGYN residency and probably one year after delivering many and maybe too many babies, I realized that I had more of an interest in surgery and started doing a little bit more rotations in the GYN space. That's when I found my mentor, Chuck Miller at the time, and worked really closely with him and really intrigued by the minimally invasive GYN space, mainly because there weren't that many specialists and experts and to really be working with many other surgeons who, you know, were performing open procedures successfully, of course, but at the same time open when we were doing very similar techniques and procedures, minimally invasive through Chuck's practice, I was just intrigued. And he was the one who mentored me to go into minimally invasive GYN surgery fellowship. That's when I got introduced to AAGL, the Fellowship Foundation, and at the time when I was applying, I think there was only 10 to 12 fellowships between the U.S. and Canada. So not many opportunities for me to expand my skill set. However, I was fortunate enough to get matched with Dr. Keith Isaacson in Boston at Newton Wellesley Hospital. I trained there for a year and Chuck brought me back on as his partner. And together then we started to grow the MIGS practice in Chicago and started our own fellowship about three years in. 
And being one of the few fellows, I think at the time when I had started fellowship, I think it was only in their fifth or sixth year of fellows. So it wasn't really that many of us out there that had been trained as well. So kind of in that journey, started to become faculty for AAGL, started to find a bit of a niche training under Dr. Isaacson. You really do become a pretty good expert in hysteroscopy. And so really, you know, expanding on that skill set in my profession. And that kind of got me to be recognized as a hysteroscopic expert with the research and publications and the lectures and the courses. And then shortly thereafter, just started to work with industry to help develop products to serve as a consultant and advisor, serve as a speaker to help train and educate. And really, if you think about it, my role was just trying to advance minimally invasive healthcare for women, whichever way I could. That was a really big passion of mine and why I went into the fellowship to begin with, because there was just such a void. And it was so pleasing to see fellowship programs growing as we were graduating fellows. It was great to see the expertise geographically expanding, even without outside of the U.S., just starting to work with international colleagues, the education, and a lot of opportunities to really help the women's healthcare advance. And so that's kind of been my path. And I was speaking in Greece at a European society And one of the industry partners that I worked closely with with educational programs said, would you ever come to industry full time? I don't think I ever really thought about it. I I know I was thinking about industry at some point down the road as maybe a second career, but I never expected it to happen so soon. And that's kind of been the journey. But I was working with probably a dozen companies during practice, training fellows, teaching residents, medical students, and then, of course, uh, speaking and lecturing around the world. So it's been an amazing journey. I felt very lucky in Chicago to get to meet you and Chuck during my training because so much of this is everybody works hard, everybody cares, everybody's trying to do a good job. But there's that element of luck when you just happen to look over and there's Chuck Miller is one of your teachers in residency, and he's doing truly innovative things, continues to do those things. But you know, you take a step back and realize like, wait, we just ha- happened to like bump into this guy, right? And then I get, and then I happened to bump into him and, and you and like, what a, you know, lucky break for us that I just happened to be in a place that had a, an educational and clinical relationship with you guys to get to work with you. And as much as we had these interests, until you see it, sometimes you don't even recognize what it is that you want to do. And so it, I agree that we shared some good fortune in getting to meet some people who really not only inspired us to do interesting things and do what we're doing now clinically, but also who cared about us in a way that, you know, I mean, I think the first AAGL Chuck took me around and was just like beaming. He just loved like showing me around, introducing me to people. And just, I think someone who like you found genuine joy in like mentoring people and like bringing people up and just had fun doing it. And it's maybe not as common as, as it ought to be, but I mean, I'm super, super lucky to have gotten to meet both of you, work with both of you, and ultimately become friends with both of you. It's been an absolute joy. So tell us about your practice when you got back to Chicago after fellowship, working with Dr. Isaacson, who, yeah, as you mentioned, is, has been doing MIGS for a long time and his hysteroscopic. Everybody I know who's trained there talks about the advanced hysteroscopy in a way that not many other people have ever seen or understand. But when you got back to Chicago, what, what was your clinical practice like? Yeah, so, you know, Keith and Chuck both are reproductive endocrinology and fertility specialists. So it was great training with Keith because I learned a lot of infertility 
procedures. And so it was a pretty simple transition. But at the time when I did fellowship, it was only one year. So I really, my skill sets really were set with Keith, but they skyrocketed when I transitioned over to Chuck as a partner because I operated with him. Now he is he is just a machine. I can't even keep up with him to this day. And he's just a phenomenal surgeon, but he operated five days a week. And so it was incredible to be able to just go into practice operating five days a week as if I was in fellowship all over again. And, you know, in fellowship, volume is so key. I also, with Keith, had several other physicians that I had been working with and trained with. And so I learned so many different styles and techniques. And then to be able to come back and work with Chuck, learn his style and technique, but also he was very open to what I had learned in fellowship. And so together, to your point, when you talk about innovation, we would just put our heads together. Hey, what did you learn? This is what I've learned. This is what I went to in the conference and heard this. This is what I've done. And and that's kind of how we were together as partners in clinical practice. As far as the practice alone itself, I focused only on GYN. I was very fortunate that that was what Chuck allowed me to do. And we would get a lot of referrals. He's a big, huge referral center. And so I ended up doing, you know, fertility surgeries as well as benign gyne and had a very nice network of referrals coming in. And so we kind of had a pretty robust GYN only surgery practice. And then Chuck would do fertility on the side as his second passion, of course. But it was it was incredible. And then three years into practice alone, I had built volume enough where we felt, okay, it's time for us to start taking on a fellow. And that's when we started our fellowship program. You've done an immense, not just volume of work, but just the number of things you've done in your career. And having Chuck as a mentor probably feels like, oh man, I can't, like you said, I can't keep up with Chuck, but Arthi, I can't keep up with you. I mean, <laughs> well, Chuck did so much. I mean, once we started our fellowships, you know, then it allowed us an opportunity to both travel and speak because we could slightly let go of the practice so that we can go and expand outside of our own four walls of the office and within our own Chicagoland community. So it was a really fortunate relationship and partnership because he worked so much with industry as well. And so allowing us to, again, utilize in our capacity as best as possible how to advance women's health care, that was our primary goal. And then on top of that, it was more access, right? So how do we access healthcare for women? And that's by creating fellowships and training more and more people. And so, you know, meeting candidates such as yourself and others that were also having that same level of passion was incredible because then it started to build our own community and network of minimally invasive surgeons. And you know, Mark, I mean, we've worked so hard to put MIGS on the map as a community, not just Chuck and myself, but as a community through AHEL and through AHEL leadership, put MIGS on the map, get it recognized by ABOG, have salaries be competitive for our specialty, have our own departments be recognized, and we're not siloed. It uh, is quite a bit of, of a journey for MIGS surgeons alone. And to be a part of that with my mentors, but also with those that were also as passionate as I was um, and young learners, it has been really an opportunity that I would say I would never had seen grow so quickly, so fast. And that's been such a wonderful, wonderful experience to have. I'll echo that. I mean, 
when I was first interested in this stuff, I remember watching some early, early videos when I was in medical school. I mean, not even having matched into OBGYN residency, like, okay, this is interesting. The very first robot assisted surgeries and looking at fellowships, there's only about 10 out there. I think there were maybe 20 when I was applying and a wide variation of quality. The fellowship board, which I was lucky to be a part of it down the road, did a ton of work to bring the fellowships up to where they needed to be and where they are now. And to think about, you know, I mean, I'm the division chief of a MIGS division in a place where there was literally nothing like that before I showed up. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of dozens or maybe even a hundred or more of us who have trained and gone out. And a lot of us mid-career MIGS surgeons are like, we should like get together and talk about like, I have to like deal with HR and like hiring and like, <laughs> you know, usually you, when you take over a division, there was someone there who like teaches you how to be a division chief and learn it a certain way. And we're like, oh wait, I mean, I have to do what now? And like all these budgets and things like that, that a lot of us are getting early in our careers because we're the first ones to do it. Obviously what we're doing is patient-centered passion, right? And we're doing this because we saw a gap in care for women for our patients. And, uh, but the logistical and administrative side of seeing that through and all the, all the other sides of it and building is something that I think a lot of us are doing that maybe we weren't even realizing was a part of it. And that's, for me personally, that's something I wanted. I was lucky to train in a place where they had a very, very solid mix infrastructure. And I was like, no, you know, I want to build it. I want to, from scratch, do that. And there are definitely days I'm like, why, why would I choose to do this? But it has been a lot of fun to be a part of uh, and, and, I, and I have a lot of pride, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky that AGL has been so supportive of me and, and, and the rest of us in, in, in building this. Yeah. And it's not even that. It's the partnerships that, you know, so I too was on the fellowship board. And then right before I left clinical care to go full-time industry, I was on the general board for AGL. But also when you're in those leadership positions, the opportunities to actually network and build relationships with other medical societies and other organizations, not only in the United States, but all over the world. And just having that community and building that community just helps to increase the accessibility and the awareness, right, for minimally invasive GYN surgery and it's for its patients. And I think that's, to your point, you know, that's how we were filling the gaps is that we were strengthening our expertise we were creating widespread access and we were growing internationally so that it became so common enough that now when you hear someone who has an open hysterectomy, you question why, what were the circumstances, because that doesn't seem like standard of care anymore. Right. And it's not like you have to go to Chicago anymore. I mean, we're everywhere, right? Like every medical, every OBGYN department of the country, if you don't have a MIGS division, look around because most of them do and patients are now... With the internet, I mean, our patients are very, very different than the ones that are the previous generation were taking care of because they have access to social media and the internet and, and all reviews and, and they, they know what they're going for. And so I think it's no longer a novelty. I mean, I think at one point early on for us, it was definitely something that you had to look for and you had to explain. I mean, I called chairs and I was like, hey, remember me from med school? This is what I do. Do you need this? And they're like, let me think about it and let me see. But now it's like, it's out there. I agree. I think there's still work to be done. That is for sure. But in a very short time frame, I would say this is probably one of the fields of medicine that has advanced as quickly or has been one of the most fast paced growth in medicine that I have seen and experienced. And I will tell you, I'm still here of women. You know, I have a friend who just told me of a her friend who had a hysterectomy, albeit uh, minimally invasive, but went home with a Foley catheter for three days. 
And I asked why. And they said, oh, that's just how they take care of their patients. And I said, okay, but that shouldn't be. I mean, they should be able to go home with the catheter. And there's, you know, actually data to share that women can go home after such things. So I think we've come a very long way, but there's still quite a ways to go. That's where the pride, to your point, comes in, that we're building these communities and we're expanding them so that their outreach is, reaches even further than what we've already implanted ourselves in, because there's just so much more of the community that we need to take care of. Yeah, no, for sure. You mentioned in your relationship, your working relationship with Chuck, you worked with industry a lot. And there's with AEGL, we've been very fortunate over the years to have really supportive industry partners as well. And it's one of those things depending on where you train, the idea that industry is good or bad. And you realize when you're in a field like ours where we need innovation, we need technical innovation, we need to be able to do, we know it can be done, but we need innovative partners in industry to help us see those ideas. I mean, again, the fact that you've got a partner who's senior to you, who's wanting to learn more. He's like, tell me how you did it. Let's put our heads together. Let's work together. He's constantly thinking and innovating. But as a physician, there are limits to what we can do to see that innovation into practice. And so talk about your relationship with industry once you got back to Chicago and how that started and how that developed. Yeah, I actually started in fellowship. So Keith and Peter Rosenblatt, Tony DeShulo, Roger Furland at that time, you know, they all worked with industry. Roger was working on the harmonic ace, and I believe Keith was as well. Keith was teaching me laser. Peter and Tony had relationships with Olympus. And so I actually was fairly, quite fairly exposed to industry partnerships and relationships as a fellow itself. And when I came with Chuck, you know, he had relationships with multiple industry partners as well. And so just seeing what we could do with these companies Primarily, it was education, teaching others how these, the skill sets that we were learning in fellowship. But, you know, not everyone can go to a fellowship, right? And some people are already deep in their career. How can we help them advance just a little with minimally invasive techniques? And how do we create educational programs? How do we change devices? I mean, think about it, Mark. You know, surgeons was a man's world. And now look how many females have gone into the surgery space, especially OBGYN. But even general surgery is changing. And but hand instruments were built for, you know, size seven, eight hand gloves. And you have females who have smaller hands. I'm a size six. And I worked with females who had size five and a half. And it was just hard to even find gloves for them, let alone instruments that could fit in their hand. And, you know, the hot topics now are ergonomics, surgeons who've been operating for so long and having so much musculoskeletal strain. We had Amy on to talk about surgical ergonomics. Yeah. I mean, no question the world was built for people that look like me, right? I mean, in my size and gender, this is like what historically I think was thought of as a surgeon. And listen, I was trained by mostly women, by mostly female surgeons. And that idea is is history. I mean, you know, my colleagues, my, my partners, my mentors, my friends come in a lot different sizes and shapes than they did 30, 40 years ago. I mean, and that's just the evolution, right? But being able to partner with industry companies, because they're the ones who make our instruments. And so being able to partner with them for them to recognize, hey, the way you've designed this, just I can't use this comfortably. I'm going to have to use two hands and I'm a two-handed surgeon. I can't put two hands on one instrument. And so it was being able to work with my male colleagues as well from that standpoint and introducing female perspective so that it really 
allowed us to incorporate all shapes and sizes so that we can efficiently and safely perform surgery, um, not only for the patient, but ergonomically for ourselves as well. And so it was those types of opportunities. And I got comfortable. Keith and Chuck and Peter are phenomenal presenters and always would sit in their presentations because they were my mentors, but learning and listening to them and really taking the value of okay, how do they present? What's the information they're presenting? What's, how, you know, what's that impact that they're looking for? And I learned from them as well how to present myself and present data and present it in a way that it's impactful to the audience. And so by doing that, I was able to become an effective advisor and a consultant and speaker then for industry as well. And at first it came, you know, Chuck was so, had so many opportunities to work with industry. He was just like, Arthi, I can't make it to this conference. I can't make it to this. I can't make it to that. He was just being invited all over the place. And so I kind of got the leftovers, which was fine. I was very happy with that because it was a place for me to start. And then obviously it grew from there as I was building my expertise, my skill set, publishing, and then working obviously more closely with industry to help advance. And so by innovating, also getting on the podium saying, okay, look at what we're, what's down the pipeline. Yeah. I mean, presenting is a skill, right? Getting up in front of an audience, being comfortable. Many of us have a differing degree of comfort being up in front of an audience. It's kind of my family business to be up on stage. I've been lucky with my, you know, things I used to do before being a doctor, being on stage never really bothered me much, but I have friends who like when they have to give grand round, the palms start getting sweaty it's the last place they want to be. And so it's, it does take a certain skill set. You've got to have the chops as a doctor, right? No one wants to hear a charlatan come tell us how to do things. You got to be a good doctor. You have to know what you're doing. You have to be an expert at that point. But then on top of that, being able to communicate that effectively, to educate, to translate what it is that you do in a way that people want to hear it. It's not something that comes naturally to a lot of people. Is that something that came naturally to you? You mentioned watching your mentors do it, but was there ever like classes you took or how did you prepare to get up in front of a big audience and, and, and communicate? You know, it, I didn't take any classes. So I'm an Indian classical dancer since I was seven years of age. And so I performed on stage multiple times. Never once did I not have the butterflies and the dry mouth and the, the sweats running down. But it was, it is nerve wracking to be on stage in front of masses of people because you want to look like a professional and you don't want to mess up, right? But I think for me, when I watched my mentors in the academic space, you know, up on stage and presenting, what I've recognized was the level of confidence they had. And so what I did to prepare myself is I just made sure I knew my material inside and out. And I always reminded myself, there's a reason why I'm the one who's up speaking on stage. I'm the one speaking on stage because I've been recognized as the expert. So people are going to ask me things that I should know. And if I'm not confident in answering a particular question of that area, then I need to make sure I prepare myself. And so I read, I mean, I did PubMed searches. I had stacks of paper. I would travel with all this, you know, I'm a little bit older than you, Mark. So paper was a thing back then. And I mean, I was highlighting articles and taking notes. I was really reading. I was reading textbooks. I was writing textbooks and doing that research. But I trained myself to be an expert. And then skill set wise, obviously high volume enough that I was able to implement that expertise in real world, right, situations. 
And that's where we would record and we would get patient testimonials. We would do live cases with them and really have a nice setup in the sense because I made sure that I empowered myself with the knowledge I needed to be proclaimed as an expert and then to go on stage and be able to exemplify one. Yeah. I mean, it's not too different than what we do every day as surgeons, right? I mean, we know our patients, we do our homework, we do all the training we did, but also making sure we keep up to date and making sure we know all the things that may or may, may go wrong or not. But also like in show business, opportunity knocks, be prepared when you open the door. I mean, even Dr. Brill, Andy Brill, he was at UIC when when I was in Chicago. And so I did a rotation, elective rotation with him. And then he did fellowship courses, like training courses and things like that. And, and I remember one year he even did a course on presentation skills. So, you know, it is, I mean, it is, there is an art to it, but so many of us are doing it. And so I really just absorbed what was around me because we had so many phenomenal speakers and presenters And Chuck does, I asked him one time when we were in the OR together, I said, you know, where does it come from? He says, oh, I actually come from a family line of orators. So it's also in his family. Yeah, no, nobody loves a stage like Chuck Miller. I mean, like he seems as happy as he ever can be up in front of an audience. Absolutely. He is not, he, he does not disappoint. But, you know, and, and you know, that's my family business a little bit as entertainment. Playing music and doing improv and stuff are, are, were hobbies of mine, but it allowed me for something like this when it came along. I was a guest on Backtable's VI show, the radiology show, and I was like, oh, this is fun. This is great. Yeah, this is my first podcast, so this is fun. Yeah, I had a great time as a guest, and I was like, do you guys need more shows? And so it was like anything, right? If you were prepared when you met Chuck to be a great resident, to let him be inspired to take you, and same with Keith, and then with industry, worked your butt off, and when you were given that opportunity, you didn't disappoint. And I think that's something for our listeners, like, you can't always guarantee what opportunities you're going to get, but when they come along, don't waste them. I mean, I was very fortunate in my career, much of it with AGL and things like that, being put on committees in different societies and the number of people who were so happy to have someone just show up and do the work and to genuinely care and to take it seriously and to work hard. I think that was something that helped me. All the things that I've done that I've been very lucky to get to do, it's a lot of it's because when given the opportunity, just make sure you don't waste it. Just make sure you take it seriously. And you, there's going to be things you do and you're not sure why you're doing it and it's no big deal. But I think a lot of us do have opportunities along the way and just taking advantage of them. But yeah, you and you've, and you've certainly done that. I will have to say, though, I did absolutely embrace everything. I was a yes girl. Opportunity came. I'm like, yes, let's do it. Yes, let's do it. Because I saw it as a, a way again and a method to support advance and advance uh, women's health care. But it can come at a price as well. And so I know we'll probably get to why industry, but I had a lot of support. You've met my husband, Bobby. He came with me to every single AAGL. My parents, when he traveled with me, my parents would come and raise my kids. I had my in-laws across the street in another neighborhood down the ways. And um, I mean, my level of community and support to help my family balance the yeses that I, you know, that I said was phenomenal. Uh, I mean, it's just something that I didn't realize I was do. It was happening naturally because everybody was there and so supportive of my career growth and the impact that they saw I was doing. I mean, Bobby saw it by firsthand by coming to AGL, all the good that we were doing. And so, of course, continued to support and my parents the exact same thing and my in-laws the exact same way. So it isn't easy. 
by any means. Uh, I did sacrifice a lot of my family time because my family, I felt, was being very well taken care of by my family members and by the support that I had and my friends as well. But it is hard. And finding that balance, I think, for me, I didn't have to make that choice, but not everyone has that luxury either. And so I would say it is, it's great to say yes, but really contemplate what sacrifices you're going to make when you say yes. And is it a worthwhile yes? Because I think my priorities at the time were just advancing women's health care, and that's it. And that's all I kept focusing on. I didn't really look any other which way. I love that you brought that up. I mean, I too have been extremely fortunate. I mean, my wife is a huge reason why I have had the success that I've had for more reasons than I can fit into an episode of the show. You know, we moved back to Kentucky because my mom and dad are down the street. Growing up here, I thought, there's no way I'm ever coming back to this place. And then you have three kids and go, actually, you know, it's not such a bad place to grow up. And yeah, I mean, much of the support and my in-laws are just like, they don't live in town, but they're just like looking for reasons to get up here. And much of the success that I have is because of the support I've had. And and no, and, and, and that's such a huge, it's a gift. It's also, I'm very lucky, right? There's no other way around it. Like not everybody has it. That's right. And it should not be taken for granted. And much of the opportunities because I've had is not just because of me. It's never just because of me, whether it's professionally like you and Chuck, whether and all the other people who've mentored me that I can't even begin to name, whether it's my partners at work, whether it's it's endless, right? We don't do this alone. And that's one of the things about AGL that I've always felt is people are always looking for ways to like help each other out. And much of the desire for me to do a show like this is because of all the, what I thought were incredibly powerful conversations, chats at a bar and a coffee shop with people at AGL over the years that have completely changed my career, have taught me, have told me what not to do and things to kind of stay away from. That's what this is, is so people can share in my good fortune of being lucky to get to know you and hear from you. Like other people, I think, need to hear your story as well. And so it does sound like we sit back and we watch you go and like, oh my God, she just works so hard. It's amazing. But we don't always, or maybe we rarely get to see the other side, the effect and the impact that it has on Bobby and the rest of your family. And by the way, you know, I love Bobby and hopefully he gets to listen and uh, hello I love seeing them, seeing people bring their families to these meetings so we so we can do what we want to do or what, what we get to do, what we're fortunate enough to get to do. And so I think that's a huge point to bring up. And thank you for bringing that up and, and sharing that because it's personal and, you know, not everyone feels comfortable or willing to share the personal parts of this because most of what we see is what's on stage or what's prepared or like you, all the things that you want to, you want to look like a pro and that you just got it figured out. But there's a lot of work behind the scenes that is not as well organized and not as seamless as we want everyone to think it is. And it's not just because we're afraid or embarrassed, but you want to, you know, you're, you're a professional. You want to, you want your patients to think you're well slept and ready to roll and you've got this. And maybe the dog was sick overnight and you, <laughs> you shouldn't quite get the sleeping needed or something. So no, it means a lot that you shared that. What impact did that have? And Because I, I want to talk about your decision to leave your clinical practice and go into industry, and both professionally but also personally. What was that decision like? So actually, you know, um, I was at ESGE, and interestingly enough, Keith was there, Chuck was there, Bobby was there, you know, so my mentors and my husband, and we were having a wonderful time. And when the one of the marketing managers from Carl Stortz approached me, who I have a very close relationship because for years they had helped provide equipment for educational courses for hysteroscopy. 
you know, when she approached me, she said, would you ever consider industry full time? And, you know, I asked her, I said, well, I don't know. You know, I'm on the board of AGL. I'm what almost, you know, thriving in my clinical career. I have so many industry partnerships. If I come to you, I have to let go of all of that. And what does that do for advancing healthcare? And I had all these questions. I also said, and she said, oh, you would have to move from Chicago. And I said, oh boy, the only city my husband would ever consider moving to would be Los Angeles. And she goes, oh, funny enough, that's where the office is. And I said, what, really? And so it kind of piqued my curiosity what industry full-time would be, because I've never been in a corporate practice. Um, Chuck is a private practitioner. He hired me. It had been a blessing that he allowed me to create my own work hours. If I wanted 60 minutes with the patient, I took 60 minutes with the patient. If I wanted 30, I took 30. And I had that flexibility and that balance. And, you know, Chuck, he's never going to retire. But I always wondered, you know, what happens when he does retire? What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? How am I going to have the flexibility to work with industry, to lead organizations, put on educational courses, publish and write, see patients in the manner that I want to see them, you know? And so I started to think about it. I said, okay, well, maybe this is the, a bridge, a nice bridge or an opportunity to consider. Uh, I just didn't consider it to happen right away. And so she said, listen, why don't you just talk to our current chief medical officer? At the very least, let him mentor you. And so that's how the conversation started, actually, with the chief medical officer. It wasn't because I was seeking a job. It was more for him to mentor me what it would be like to transition into industry down the road. And I asked, did I need a master's degree? Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? What would set me up to be a good candidate for industry? And he mentored me for an hour. And the next thing you know, two days later, I'm getting a call from HR asking me to formally interview. And it shook me a little because I said, I never even thought of the opportunity of leaving clinical practice at that moment. And so that was, I remember I flew back from Greece on a Sunday. Monday was when I talked to this uh, CMO, Dr. Dennis Fowler. And he was giving me advice and things like that. And then on a Wednesday, two days later, I get the call from HR. And so Thursday morning, I'm operating with Chuck. And I said, Chuck, I don't know what to do. I was just talking to everybody, but I wasn't seeking out a new career. He said, Arthi, don't burn bridges. You never know what the opportunity is going to be like. Just go for it and see, see what it is. And at the very least, at least you make new connections. What a great partner though, right? What a great mentor and boss. Absolutely. There's two, there's a couple ways. I mean, probably more than two, but a couple, a couple ways that can go where he sees his partner possibly looking at an opportunity to go elsewhere and you can freak out and try to take care of yourself. Or if you're a true mentor like Chuck, hey, you go do the thing that makes you excited or curious or that you want to do and how can I help? And this just, that's what we should all be striving for. I mean, that's, you know, we want to see our people, if they succeed and leave, it's because we've done a good job as leaders and mentors. So I'm not surprised to hear that, but I love hearing that. I think that is so important, regardless of what career path you take. Finding that mentor or mentors, I've been very, very blessed that I've had multiple. And obviously, Chuck being a really critical one for me because I've been with him for so many years, but he started in residency, right? At the When I just even was dabbling in the idea of a fellowship. And I started, I went to residency in a community hospital, mainly because I wasn't thinking I wanted to do a fellowship. And at that time, when you applied for residencies, if you wanted to do a fellowship, you went into a university. 
in an academic center. And if you didn't want to do a fellowship, you went into the community programs. And the moment I recognized I wanted to change my path, that's when he started to mentor me from second year onwards. And so it's been phenomenal. And then on top of that, Keith and then Peter and Stephanie and all those people, you know, all my mentors that I've met from my fellowship and then now meeting Dr. Fowler. So I did go. Chuck said, let's see. And I went. And when I came for the interview, first of all, it was in November. I walked out of my hotel room and the sun is shining on my face. And it was so warm. And I was and I sat there and I was thinking, what am I doing in cold Chicago? <laughs> it's a good it's a good time to leave Chicago to interview in L.A. Yes, yes. So I felt like a warm hug as soon as I walked out of my hotel room and went to the office. And it was an incredible opportunity. I had interviewed with so many different team members at the company, all, you know, within with different responsibilities and telling me how I could be involved. And then the next day I had two phone interviews with some executive leaders as well. And I have to tell you, you know, I've been telling you about my passion to advance women's health care. But what cinched the job for me, why I wanted this. Now, I remember I didn't even apply. I didn't even put an application in. So at this point, I was just going to see what it was like and to not burn bridges per Chuck's words and advice. But a couple of things stuck out. One, medical affairs at Carl Schwartz was very new. They had only started, Dr. Dennis Fowler started it in January of 2019. He's a, he's a general surgeon that actually practiced at a Columbia University. Uh, he's worked with multiple industry companies thereafter. Uh, he was OR director right after clinical practice. And so there was so much that I recognized if he was to be my new boss he would be a phenomenal mentor for me as well. And so that was one that I saw that I would have growth and an opportunity to continue to learn and be mentored. So I'd be in good hands. And two, because it was a new department, I basically had a clean slate. I could mold the department alongside uh, Dr. Fowler and we could really elevate and create an impact not only in gynecology, but in all the multiple other specialties that Carl Stewart's products support. And to me, it was like, wow, I can now impact healthcare beyond gynecology. And the community, uh, what community am I leaving behind? Well, I'm leaving behind a community where we now went from 10 fellowships to now, what, 52 fellows graduate a year? To your point, you turn and there are MIG surgeons everywhere, probably need more in some rural areas, but it's significantly expanded. We hired one of my previous fellows. And when I seen her skill sets and her career growth, I sat there and I said, well, you know, she can absolutely take over my patients. And I would be so comfortable with her, with my patient's care in her hands, because she's phenomenal as well as a surgeon and as a leader. And I realized it's okay. I think this is not a bad time for me to try something new and to impact medicine in a different way and in now impact more than just gynecology as well. So I got excited about the job and I immediately told my husband and my father and my mother and my sister, I said, gosh, I didn't even apply for this, but I'm actually really excited for the opportunity. I think the biggest thing was one, you know, we needed to be a lateral move. We set up a community for the kids, my family and everybody's in the Midwest. And if we were to move to LA, I would need some level of support. And my husband, we would all be on our own. And so I would need a better work-life balance. 
because now I don't have my family and my community to help raise the kids while I'm working on my career. And one of the multiple people that I interviewed with in Carl Stort says that is one of their priorities is focusing and balancing work and life balance. And when they said that to me, I didn't quite get it until I actually left and joined Carl Stortz and moved my family across to the West Coast. And they really do. I mean, for two years straight, Dr. Fowler kept getting mad at me. He goes, Artie, I'm seeing emails at like 630 at night. It should be shut off. I shouldn't be seeing things. Why are you working on a Saturday? Artie, what are you? it's been a year. You haven't taken one vacation day. And I realized that I actually was getting lectured <laughs> for not taking vacation or for working too hard. Whereas the other way around, I was being admired, right, for working so hard. And, and, and it was just part of what I expected of myself. And so I came into an environment where I now can be home for my kids. And that to me has been an incredible feeling, especially I know a lot of us have gone through the difficulty of COVID. And um, my younger son really was having struggling. And I remember one time we got into a bit of a, an argument. He goes, you know, mom, you don't have the right to tell me what to do. You were never there for me. No. And I said, you know, you're absolutely correct. I wasn't, but I'm here for you now. And I'm sorry I wasn't there for you before, but I'm here now. And I have the opportunity to continue to be here for you. So when I talked about sacrifices, Mark, I didn't realize how much, even though I may have been home, my mind wasn't present because I was working on a, you know, a publication or a presentation or finishing charts or I was dictating notes or I was doing something for my career. And even though I felt like I was at home, my mind wasn't at home. And now I'm in a position where I'm not only impacting innovation and advancements in healthcare. I'm also now impacting my family life. And my husband, um, as you know, Mark, but my husband's in media and entertainment. And I had the opportunity when I was at AAGL this year, you know, I was planning to stay the whole time. And my husband said, hey, my movie's coming out. It's premiering. What time are you coming home? And when he told me that I when I basically realized I was going to miss out on his premiere, I thought to myself and I said, what am I doing here? I can leave. I can actually leave and go and support my husband on one of the biggest moments in his life thus far. And I did. I changed my flight. I left. I came home. And my son, my older son, actually texted me. He goes, Mom, I heard what you did for dad. And thank you, because I know how much he support you. And it's so nice to see you supporting him. And so it resonates, right? I mean, our kids are growing older. They're observant. And so I, for me, I left a clinical success behind. I was really proud of what I had built, what I had done, the fellows we were training, the, you know, just the impact we were making. But this opportunity to come to industry full time and still do that, but being able to focus on my family too, it was just the right opportunity for me. It's great. First of all, I love just hearing that you're happy. I mean, you know, as a friend, right? That's all you want for anybody. And I, I think the culture of medicine, the culture of putting others before yourself has consequences. Yeah. Um, you know, we, I gave grand rounds in residency because I'd met so many miserable doctors and I've spent, I spent the last from chief year until now trying to figure out how to do that and be very proactive in designing a job for myself and picking a place to live and all the things because I met so many people who were working at the edges of what they could take. And I, it didn't look sustainable 
to me. It didn't look like something that I wanted to be a part of. I felt like I wanted to be a good doctor and a good surgeon, and then I needed to work hard to do that. But I also knew that if I wasn't well, if I wasn't doing okay, I, I, I couldn't imagine my patients doing well. And so I've tried to do that. I've failed many times along the way and taking on more than I probably could have or should have. And sometimes that's what the job demanded. And, you know, but yeah, it, it's something that I think affects anyone doing this job in one way or another. I mean, you have to make decisions and, and not just being a doctor. I mean, any important job, right? There, there are important jobs across the country, across the world that have nothing to do with medicine that are important, that are part of the fabric of our society that, so I don't want to, I don't want anyone to listen and think that I think what we do is inherently special because there's a lot of people out there doing all sorts of things that are absolutely essential to all of us living our lives here. And we all make sacrifices, but to try to think about how we can make some changes in our life to be around the people we care about. And I'm very lucky. I got a lot of people that care about me and you sound like you've got a ton of people who really care about you. And, you know, my, my dad always told me, you know, no one ever says on their deathbed, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Right. And, you know, and, and, you're, and the other thing you hear all the time, your job never loves you back. Right. And you do care. And, and this is patient care. and This is people's lives. And so you do want to make sure you try as hard as you can to do a good job. But to be able to do that and have time with your family, because there's no question what you're doing has an impact on patient care. And that's something when I was working on the Committee for Health Economics and Coding for AGL and understanding like, oh, wait, that's how healthcare works. That's how all this works. I can work at a national level. I can impact not just the patients in my clinic or even in my division or department, but actually like make an impact nationally. And so, you know, learning about how industry works, whether it's the healthcare industry overall, whether it's a specific industry like the one you're working in, or whether it's just how healthcare as a business works, because we spend, you know, that's what people don't realize. You spend four years in medical school and training and residency and maybe a fellowship. And, and I don't know about you, but I never was sat down and taught about how the business of healthcare works. A lot of us figured out certain parts of that once we're out in practice, whether it's billing and coding, but it's not like the actual business, the industry of, of healthcare. And it was incredibly powerful for me to learn about the big 30,000 foot view of how all this works. So I could then make smarter decisions for myself, for my patients, for my family, to be able to make an impact that made me feel good. Because we, we, like you've said, we, we get into this job because we care about taking care of people and we want to do a good job. But there are a lot of ways to do that. And having people like you who have a true North Star and want to take care of people, having people like you in industry, having people with the North Star running hospitals who genuinely put patients first. Yes, it's a, it's a business and yes, money has to get made and those things. But to be able to have the person in charge of that, you know, because it's culture's top down, as you know, right? If, like you've got a mentor who's saying you go home like that. Well, that's the culture here. That's how we're all going to work. And the person you bring in after that, you're going to do that too, because that's the culture here. And when you have leadership that puts patients first, that puts their employees' lives at the top of the list, you know, they value that understanding that there are people who work here. A lot of us have varying degrees of support for that part of our lives. It means everything. I agree. And I would say you have to do what you love. Um, I will say I did feel loved back from my career choices, from, you know, my partners, our learners, the industry partners that we had. You know, and I definitely have love for the people. And that's the true joy of my job is not only patient care, but walking into clinic on Monday morning and seeing like the people who've helped build this with me and who like take care of me on my, you know, on my not best days and my partners and my OR team when I walk in the OR and it's a, it's a Hoffman OR day and they're like pretty fired up about, you know, what we're going to do today. Like, yes, 
that you can you can you know you can see the smile on my face right but that's yeah no, the people absolutely i feel love every day at work but you know is is the institution going to love you back is the company going to love you back and i think that's where burnout is real because we love what we do every day and so that's why we do it but the circumstances sometimes is where burnout can exist, right? I think to your point, I think COVID was a catalyst, I believe. And with reimbursements, you know, we we are struggling. I mean, I remember almost three years in a row, if I remember correctly, I had to work 10, 20, 30% harder just to kind of make the same amount of revenue. And so it is difficult. And I would say first thing first is, you know, you have to love what you're doing to want to be able to go to work and be happy about that. That helps to reduce that burnouts or that feeling that you're, gosh, that you're feeling stuck in a place. That community and that support is very fortunate to have. Not everybody does have that. And I, to your point, I've been very, very fortunate in that journey. And for me, I feel very rewarded because even if I can make any little small change, that to me means I'm servicing my community. And that's ultimately, I think, as a physician, why I went into healthcare and became a surgeon. Um, I loved surgery because something was wrong. You went in, you fixed it, and then you're like, oh, God. Good. They felt so much better afterwards, you know. And so that's kind of how I see industry and my relationship with that. But being in a, in a situation where I'm not surrounded by my family now, being able to take care of my family alongside Bobby has been really important. And so I would just advise what I've learned through my entire career and experiences building it is one, do what you love. Two, even if, if what you're doing you love is prioritized, make sure that those around you are also prioritized. You can't take them for granted. And when you do, they'll still be there, right? And that's the fortunate thing. But sometimes you'll get in a situation where they may not be, and you don't want to take it to so far where you feel like, oh gosh, I have to pick and choose. And now you're regretting decisions that they've made for, for you or you've made for them. But ultimately, I think it's finding that balance. And again, I have been fortunate to find that balance, to be able to go to AAGL and still get the hugs from all my colleagues, even though I'm not in clinical practice anymore, and being asked, hey, when are you coming back? When are you coming back? And don't you miss surgery? Don't you miss this? Don't you miss that? Well, do, do you? I don't. I think <laughs> I did so much in such a short period of time. Because remember, we were a high volume center. So we were always operating. And I learned so much. And I taught so much. And I helped build product. I mean, there was so much I did in a really short period of time. Do you still have any clinical practice now? No, I have none. I have none. I miss operating in the sense that helping my patients and working alongside my partners uh, and my team, that always was brought joy to me. But I felt like when in my admin roles or in my leadership roles, like I do get the same vibe, this, or the same, this, not the same vibe, the same uh, joy, the same feedback. Like when I see a project that we do go well, even though there's not a direct patient response in that moment, like I get the same reward. I get a lot out of it when I see a junior partner that I've mentored succeed or I have someone that I've mentored match in, in fellowship. And it's like that to me, like I get, you know, I have a great day in the OR, do something really tough and it turns out great. Like, yes, all of these rewards can be valuable in 
I think it's important to think outside of our narrow clinical practice some days to realize that we can do, we can take that energy, that curiosity, that passion, and go on and do and do more. But that's it. It's building a legacy too, right? I mean, when I went to AHL, there's Chuck doing the honorary speech. There's my young partner who was my fellow. I'm seeing her teach. And I mean, it's incredible to see what they've been able to continue to do. And, uh, you know, they did tell me my name is still on the office door. So if I ever want to go back, <laughs> I have, a, I have a, a practice waiting for me. It's very sweet. But and it's amazing. I think that's that's my advice is find the right community, find the right headspace for yourself, for your family. Make sure that work and life balance truly do exist. I didn't think, I thought I had it all. And then when I left, I was like, wow, I really didn't realize how much I wasn't there for my family. But ultimately, this job now with Carl Stortz has just been an incredible opportunity. I found another fantastic mentor. I'm learning so much uh, in the corporate world. From your standpoint, business acumen is growing exponentially for me. And I have so many supporters and leaders that I've been working with and working alongside with and learning from that it's just been an exciting new journey. So I don't miss the OR, the operating room. I do product testing for our own products. So I'm operating. I'm still doing cases, not on patients per se, but I'm still operating. I'm still putting my skill sets and and that's important for the company as well. So there's a lot of things that I've brought from my clinical career into the industry to help bring our medical community thoughts in an impact that maybe an engineering company wouldn't have thought of because now I'm bringing a clinical perspective into it. And so it's been fun, man. I got to tell you, Mark, I've been so fortunate and I really wish that everyone has an opportunity to do what they love never feels that they're trapped, don't get to a brink of burnout, and really just can learn from my journey that you can do it all, but you just got to find that balance and and how you do it and what you want to do and and be realistic with your goals depending on your circumstances. But can you have it all? I think you can. And it's just it might be different for one person from the next and that's it. So my journey is not going to be the same and the right journey for you or your journey is not going to be the same journey for the next person. But as long as it's your path and it's your right journey and you feel happy for it and you feel that love back from your family and from your community and from your work, I can't say anything else but search and seek it. And don't give up. Take a shot. I feel that way with this show. I mean, it's it's not my full-time job. I still have a full-time clinical practice. But man, I get excited about it. Man, this is fun. This is what I've, I've always wanted to do it. I know how much work it takes to put on a show like this, the engineers and the admins and all the support that allows a show like this to get made. I had thought about doing it years past, but I was like, it's, just, it's not going to be very good. I don't have the ability to do all the other stuff as well. And when the opportunity came along, I was just like, I'm just going to, I'm going to shoot my shot and see what happens. But always, always be looking for opportunities. Always, you know, follow your curiosity. And I think that's the thing, the most powerful force in the universe is curiosity. Because if I'm up at night thinking about it, if I'm thinking about something when I get out of bed in the morning, like I'm going to be better at it. I'm going to do a better job. Um, And it can be hard to do the same thing every day for 30 years. And so, you know, as surgeons, you want to continue to be curious and get better. And at some point, like, you know, you've seen Chuck has continued to do that in a surgical world, but not everybody can do that. And so, uh, yeah, no, I, I love that story. And there's a, a wide range of what that can look like. I'm just happy you're happy. That's 
uh, bottom line, you know, when people you care about are doing well, it makes you happy. So, well, I appreciate the opportunity, Mark, to speak to you and to your audience. Again, you know, always reachable. And I don't have a perfect path, a perfect story by any means. But if anyone can take anything out of it, it's really just being aware of yourself and your circumstances and your situation and just making sure that you really optimize everything that you possibly can and seek happiness. And I think it comes in so many different forms and ways, but don't be afraid to do it. And to your point, Mark, I mean, try it. And if you fail, it's okay. I mean, I was so scared to start as a medical director. I I had no clue what I was going to be doing. And now this month being advanced as an interim chief medical officer, I am scared. But at the same time, I'm excited. It means a lot that you were, you know, I'm so grateful for your openness, for your honesty, your candid uh, nature today. I think our listeners will will get so much out of hearing your story. Yes, thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it. And it's great to see you doing so well. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to follow the podcast, rate it five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable OBGYN on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable OBGYN is hosted by myself, Mark Hoffman. And Amy Park. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ogrodzinski. Show notes and social media by Jody Lenora. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kennebrew. Music written and performed by Scott Baby Daddy Hoffman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on Backtable OBGYN are their own, and do not reflect the views or positions of their employers or any entities they represent.